Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Aesthetic Insider Radio Show. This is your host, Angela O'Mara. Today, by popular demand, we have a repeat guest, um, Kurt Toller, who is an Arizona attorney um, who works and practices with Cedar HR Solutions based in Tucson, Arizona, is joining us today to um, discuss further the top employee policies that can cause legal problems in an aesthetic practice. Kurt, welcome to us. Welcome back to Aesthetic Insider Radio. Um, I'm so happy to have you back on the show. Thanks, Angela. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Now, you know, Kurt, you know, for our audience, because this is kind of the uh, se- sequel, if you will, to our last radio interview um, where we talked, you know, much about different employee handbooks and the importance of an employee handbook as well as, you know, labor issues and, and different things that can occur in, a, in an, an aesthetic practice. Um, but if you wouldn't mind, for those listeners that, you know, perhaps have not heard the, f- the first radio interview that we did together, <clears throat> if you would remind our audience about Cedar HR Solutions, what you do or what they do and your role within the company. Sure thing. So uh, Cedar basically handles HR for uh, medical and dental practices, essentially healthcare generally, but we focus on the smaller practices. And what I mean by smaller is essentially non-hospitals. So, you know, if if you are running your own show, we want to help you out because we expect that people who are in that area don't have enough or don't have all of the HR answers. So we do handbooks, we do agreements, uh, we do um, uh, support, and that's where I come in. And support is uh, a manager, a doctor has a problem, has a question, has a situation, and they call us and say, "Hey, uh, my employee is chronically late, or uh, you know, my assistant is pregnant. What do I do?" Or worst case, you know, someone just hit somebody. <laughs> How do I resolve this? You know, things <laughs> like that. So we, ba- I basically solve problems all day. Also, we have violence in the workplace. <laughs> I guess that's a whole. Every once in a while. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, um, you know, I do know, you know, that part of um, the Cedar is is very kind of pro education to you know the the medical community, and um, you know um, some of the things I, I do know that you have done is you know you do go out to some of the medical meetings and give presentations on different issues, you know, then and kind of to educate what's, how Cedar can help a physician, you know. But what I'd really like to kind of get into a little bit today is, you know, when you meet with those doctors, you know, who are really out in the field and really dealing with with problems, you know, what are the most, um, you know, the biggest problems that you see that aesthetic physicians today are facing in terms of staffing and employment problems? Well, so I mean, there's a, a huge breadth of this, and it can happen in almost every aspect of uh, of hiring, firing, and management, right? Kind of the start, the middle, and the end uh, of, of employee relations. Uh, but the one that I see a lot of recently, simply because the law is changing and people most employers don't even know that it exists is with the National Labor Relations Act. And for those not familiar with it, uh, it basically was a uh, union saving or protecting law that uh, was put into place decades ago by the federal government. Uh, And it was basically meant to protect large companies who have employees who start to unionize, and it protects them from an employer who stops that by, by, you know, firing everyone who's trying to unionize or something like that. 
that law hasn't changed, but the interpretation of the law has. And so now it affects much, much smaller businesses, and it affects them much more significantly. And so um, the practical outcome is that you can't stop what's what are called non-supervisory. So think like rank and file, your assistant, your front desk, you know, that kind of thing. You can't stop them from talking about their conditions of employment. And that could be wages, it could be hours, it could be, you know, how good their or bad their supervisor is, uh, a, a lot of things that have to do with their work life. Uh, and those interactions can't be prohibited, restricted, or even kind of uh, pushed down or chilled is the, is the technical term. Um, and that can get in some really weird spaces. And uh, I'll tell you a story about a, a doctor that kind of had this come out of nowhere. Uh, small practice um, down in uh, Texas, right, so not a state that's very, super employee-friendly. It's, it's got pretty uh, good rules. Um, but the federal rules, of course, still apply. And he had this uh, employee, eh, not the greatest employee, but not at the firing stage yet. She goes home, gets really mad about something, gets on Facebook and posts this rant about how little money she makes and how uh, upset she is about how she's treated and how her you know, uh, schedules are set up just to make her mad and her boss is terrible and the doctor isn't very good. And then just you know, kind of for kicks at the end, throws in the fact or her belief that the doctor is having an affair with the office manager. Now, they're both married to other people, and that's a pretty serious allegation. So some other employees like the post, they uh, comment on the post, some agreeing, some disagreeing, right? Um, but that's enough to make it concerted activity because it has to be conversation between two employees, uh, two or more. Um, so the, uh, the doctor, after what I have to assume is an incredibly awkward conversation with his wife the night before, comes into the office the next day. This employee comes into work as if nothing's happened. Uh, doctor pulls out a printout of the Facebook post and I think quite understandably says, you're fired, right? And I, I guess I was pretty happy he didn't just hit her uh, at that point, which would have been a terrible yeah, thing. Yeah, exactly. don't, don't do that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think we can all kind of like put ourselves in those shoes and go, wow, glad that didn't end in violence because that was a pretty serious yeah. situation. Um, so she gets fired. She goes to her attorney. Attorney sees that there is a weakness here. And the weakness isn't that she was fired because she made this terrible statement, a, a technically defamatory because it was untrue and hurt the reputation of the doctor about his having an affair, but because he fired her for the whole post. The whole post had things about these conditions of employment. It had, you know, the, the, the pay, the situation with the supervisor. And because it had that, it gave this kind of crowbar to open up uh, the practice and extract all of this money from them. So they go to the NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, which is essentially the regulator that enforces this act, and they sued uh, the practice. And so about six months later, the practice eventually settled the lawsuit, spent tens of thousands, I think it was fifty or $60,000 in legal defense and settlement of it, had to pay her for those six months of unemployment, right? So essentially had to pay her as if she had been employed, but she didn't do any work, had to offer to rehire her. So if the employee had agreed, she would have actually come back to work at this office where she had essentially scorched the earth. Um, and the doctor had to stand up in front of his entire staff and read a prepared statement from the NLRB that basically said, you know, I'm really sorry for violating federal law. That was not wow. an ideal outcome. <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and terrifying, right? Because it's a it's an eight person practice. Like this is there's never going to be a union there, not in a hundred years, and you know none of them want a union there. But the law still affects them, and making that bad choice, which was for the best of reasons, but still a bad choice, just crushed him. And a fifty thousand dollar you know uh, expenditure could ruin a new practice. Like that could be the end. Uh, yeah. At a bigger practice, yeah, you can eat it, but man, is that going to hurt? Yeah, but I think you know, in any in any situation, fifty thousand dollars is fifty thousand dollars, and whether it's yeah. always enough to crush you or it's money that could be spent on something to improve the exactly. practice, you know, is um, that's an unbelievable story. And so, let me ask you, what would be have been the alternative? You know, had he rather than go in, of course, infuriated and instant firing, had he called? Cedar and spoke with you or another HR advisor, what would have been your tactic in that situation? Well, the key there and why you need to talk to other people, especially in emotionally charged situations like this one, is you need outside perspective. And ideally, you need a employment professional's perspective because they're going to let you do what you want to do, which is get her out of the office. And I think we all know that she needed to be out of that office. Um, But get her out of the office in a way that is safer to the practice. Now, you can't make a termination 100% safe. You just can't. But you can do it in a way that takes a, that takes away the weapons that the employee can hit you with. And um, the way to do that is to fire them for, quote, the right reasons. And the right reasons in that was the defamatory statement, right? He attacked uh, – she attacked his – personal behavior, uh, made defamatory statements that he technically could have sued her for, although probably not useful in that situation. Um, So if we had fired for that and cut out, essentially pushed away all of the protected activity, that would have been much safer. And that's something that we deal with here. Uh, It's happened before. We, We fix this kind of situation for employers. Well, well, yeah, that's just an unbelievable story. Um, you know, and then, you know, obviously as we, we get into these things now is, you know, like you said, is, is just that publicly speaking about, you know, I'm, I don't make enough money, I don't like my supervisor, you know, I have problems. Um, you know, in to me, those are all private, confidential things between her and the employer, but then, of course, I am also a business owner myself and would hope that my staff, you know, keep those things between themselves too. Um, or to themselves. Um, what is there that physicians can do, again, in terms to protect themselves from, from you know, the staff and, and like we've said, the worst problems that can happen in a practice? Okay. Um, well, in this specific situation, uh, you want to have a handbook that talks about the NLRA that says that this speech is protected, and then you want to follow those rules. So if an employee is... Uh, I'll deal with an exact situation. So a couple weeks ago, we had an office manager come to us and said, this employee is going from, you know, person to person at the office and just kvetching. It's just just complaining constantly about a whole variety of different things, how much money she makes, when she works, how little she works, how much she works. You know, like there's no winning. And she just goes from person to person, just talking their ear off, distracting them, frustrating them. Some of these other employees are complaining about this even. Um, And you know, I'm scared because I don't want to have this NLRA thing that you've scared me with come down on me, or I don't want to have the mountain fall on me. So uh, I said, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. 
recast the question, right? You're worried about the complaining. Let's worry about what the complaining effect is, right? What's the effect? She's not doing her job, right? If she spends the entire day walking around complaining about things, she's not accomplishing her tasks. So go after the performance, right? Say, hey, your performance is substandard. You didn't do X, Y, and Z within the deadline that you were given. Therefore, we're going to write you up and we're going to move you to being pushed out of the office. But let's say that she's, you know, just a champion and she gets all of her work done and then spends her, you know, five minutes of free time doing that. You still don't want that to happen. Well, you can protect the other employees in the practice from that kind of, not technically harassing, but kind of annoying behavior and say, hey, listen, your behavior is distracting other employees. If you want to talk to them about this stuff, you need to do it on your break because it's taking away from their work time and they're complaining to me about it. I don't care what you talk about. You could be talking about your your pay or you could be talking about what you did over the weekend. That's not important. Please stop distracting people who don't want to talk to you. Right? So we attack the things, we, we, we correct we do corrective actions on the things that aren't protected by federal law. Does that answer your question, Angel? Yeah, yeah, it does. Um and that is, is, is kind of a great example there. Is there any way of, you know, in the hiring process of spotting such a person? During the hire, you know, are there any kind of keys to hiring that that Cedar offers, you know, to its customer base um, to kind of try and weed out like a problem employee from the get-go? Sure, it's hard to know a complainer in the hiring process, um, but what you can do is get a complainer. You can get someone who is less likely to be happy in your practice. And the happier your employees, the less likely they are to complain. I think that's you know, essentially a tautology yeah, yeah. almost. Um, but um, the way that you get to that is you find someone who's not just going to have the skills that you need, but who's going to fit your culture. So I'll give you an example. Uh, you know, everyone does interviews, or at least I hope you all do interviews. Uh, but I see a varying levels of quality of interview, right? There'll be the interview question that, you know, oh, so how long have you been working in this industry, right? Or how long have you been the position that I'm hiring for? The person's like five years. While that does give you information, it's not great information, right? A, it's information that you should have on the resume anyway, uh, and B, you're not getting anything more from that person. You're not seeing what kind of person they are. So. Uh, then there's kind of the level two, which is ask open-ended questions, which probably is what all of you are doing, right? Like that's that's a common thing. Even in just talking to a person that you meet, at, you know, at a social function, you don't don't just ask yes or no questions, um, which can be good, right? So you know, what do you like about the field? Uh, you know, what what would you want to do should you come here? And those are good, but they're not ideal because they're talking either generally or hypothetically or future, what do you want, which can be useful, but it's much better to talk about experiences, right? Think about the difference between talking to someone uh, who, who's going on about you know, stuff they haven't done versus someone who's telling you a story. The story is much more captivating. The story tells you a little bit more about what that person was and who that person might be right now and what they're likely to be in the future. So say, you know, let's say your practice is super high-end, right? You don't see very many patients, but you have to take immaculate care of every single one of them. Um, you want someone who's been in that situation. You want someone who has dealt with people who really prize, let's say, discretion, right, who uh, need to be taken care of, who may make insane demands on the staff. You want someone who's used to that and isn't going to freak out or balk at it. So you say, hey, what was the, you know, craziest thing that a patient has asked you? 
you uh, before. And that starts to get that person telling you a story. It gets them to tell you how they dealt with someone who was being possibly unreasonable or irrational, something that might happen in your own practice. Flip side of that, let's say you run a very busy practice, right? Normal practice like yours might run six or eight patients a day. You're doing 12. Well, you better make sure that that person has been in a high-speed environment before. Because if you get that other one, that candidate who'd be great at the two-patient-a-day <laughs> practice but really high-end, now you put him into this, like, multitasking, crazy world of do it all, do it at once, and, you know, do it without breaking a sweat, and that person is likely going to crack. And even if they have the same skills... The putting the, the, the round hole in the square peg is going to make them unhappy and is going to make them much more likely to complain because they're just not necessarily equipped to solve the problems you need solved. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, I know in, in many states, at least in California, and, I'm, and I don't know if this is just across the board, <clears throat> but um, when you call them references, you know, and so, you know, I assume you tell all of your customers that, you know, they must check references when they're hiring. Um Ideally, can yeah. you ask? Can you ask specific questions, um, or is that really up to you know? In the moment, if you say, "No, may I ask you some questions about this employee?" It's really up to the person to say, "Yes, you can," or "No, you cannot." Um, what's your your take on that? Well, you can ask any question you want. There's, and for the listeners that don't know this, there are some answers you don't want to know. <laughs> There's information that you just don't want to be aware of, which is why you shouldn't look at their social media, which we can talk about if, if uh, you want mm -hmm. to, but a little bit separate. You don't want to know things like, is the person disabled? Is the person gay? Basically, is the person, does the person fall into some protected class? Because once you know that, you can be uh, held accountable for discriminating against it. Not to say that you were, it just makes you more vulnerable. So you don't want to ask anything like, you know, what is that person's ethnicity? Not that I think that you would, but like that, those are the questions that you definitely want to avoid. Now, when you're checking references, you can ask pretty much anything. Whether that person tells you <laughs> is kind of on is, them. Yeah. Uh, we, yeah, we advise our members when they're providing references out for an ex-employee to limit it to uh, when the person was employed, what their title of position uh, was, and how much money they make. Because each one of those is very is very factual and can be verified, right? There's no opinions that are put into that. This does kind of create a problem, though, because... Sometimes you need more information than that, and a savvy ex-employer doesn't want to tell you something that can come back and bite them. Um, and that's why we use sometimes reference releases. And that's essentially a release, just like any other release, you know, release of claims or anything like that, which basically the employee or the applicant in this case would sign saying, hey, uh, ex-employer can say whatever is truthful about me. Mm -hmm. Now, if you okay. were to receive as an uh, reference contact this reference release, again, please don't give this long monologue of opinions about them. Stick to verifiable facts, but you can expand a little bit. Like, hey, this person was late 13 times in six months or two months, <laughs> you know, and yes. that is going to give them some real information. Uh, but be careful of anything that can't be backed up, right? A person late all the time versus late X times in Y time period are two very different things. Yeah, that's interesting because, you know, I, I actually, I, I have had, you know, myself where I've, you know, past employees had, the, the company has sent over, you know, a release to sign or a signed release. And and it's kind of, you know, then you feel more obligated to actually give a, a reference. <laughs> so whereas, like sure. you said, you know, it's 
perhaps you don't really want to say too much other than yes they worked here and this is what they made and no they're not rehirable <laughs> I mean I think yeah. in California and that you, is you know they, if they ask you would you rehire this person is a is that a legal question it it can be be careful with it <laughs> and here's why um, so uh, so employer wants to get rid of this employee employee kind of doesn't want to be there anyway and so uh employer kind of pushes them out the door or even maybe even directly fires them let's let's give that situation um but they want they don't want the person to hang out on unemployment right because you know the edd's knocking on their door and sorry the the uh, unemployment organization that california runs is knocking on their door and uh, uh they don't want to have to pay more for an unemployment so they decide to like you know maybe provide a a reference letter or to provide really good recommendations now this is after having fired this person allegedly for some mm-hmm. sort of performance or attitude issue but they're going to provide that to smooth the way to that person's next job well, here's the problem with that. Let's say that that ex-employee decides to sue their prior employer, i.e., the doctor who's providing that reference release, that, that reference. Um, well, now when the employee sues, if the if the doctor says, "Well, you know, you were you were a bad employee. I fired you because you were late or because you were bad at your job." Uh, the employee now has a reference letter that says, no, no, that employee was really good. So now the plaintiff's counsel gets to say, well, were you lying when you fired her or were you lying when you sent this letter? Because we're not really sure when that was, but we know it was one of them. (laughs) That's a really bad way to start a lawsuit. (laughs) Yeah. God, there's so many things. I mean, what would you say is, you know, again, we, we have about eight to ten minutes left on the show here, and there's so many questions I have, but... What would you say are the top three worst things that can cause legal problems down the road for a physician's practice? Well, the easiest stuff is always going to come in the handbook, and here's why. Um, if if something goes wrong with, with the management in the office, it's often a he said, she said. Unless there's email involved or some sort of writing, it, it often comes down to... It, w- lawyers call issues of fact, something that has to be determined. You know, like uh, employee says that they were sexually harassed, doctor says that nothing happened, now they have to sort it out. That case is valuable, but it's not easy. And when you go to a plaintiff's counsel, I don't know if you have ever, you know, listeners have ever done this, but the plaintiff's counsel is a businessman too, and he wants to make money as easily as possible. If he can make money in two months, he'd rather do that than fight for it for a year. So the best cases from a plaintiff's counsel's perspective, i.e. the worst cases from an employer's perspective, are the easy ones, the ones where the violations are clear, and that's usually going to be based in the handbook, because the handbook's written. The handbook's given to the employee. The employee will often have it when they walk into the plaintiff's counsel's office and put it down on the thing, so on the table. And now the, uh, the attorney can just thumb through it and find violations and sue based on that. They don't need what could be a terrible witness, right? Because if the person's a terrible employee, they're probably going to be a terrible witness too. Um, so they look through it and they find things, and I'll just go through some of the uh, options we've actually literally seen in handbooks because we will evaluate you know, current handbooks and tell people what's wrong with them. So we've seen these in actual handbooks. Um, you know, Some things like uh, unauthorized overtime will not be paid. Now, seems reasonable, right? You're telling the employee, don't work overtime be- unless you get authorization, and I won't pay you. But the problem is whenever an employee works, you have to pay them. Um, you could 
you know, fire that employee for working the unauthorized overtime, but you need to give them the check with the pink slip. <laughs> so okay. um, seeing something like that is a clear violation. The employee, the, the plaintiff's counsel is just flipping through, flipping through, looks at, sees it, goes, oh, okay, well, we've got a winner. <laughs> Easy there. Um, another one would be, uh, you know, I get a lot of practices that uh, are run by people who are religious. Uh, and, you know, they will have a uh, prayer guide in there, right? They'll, they'll say, you know, we're going to have a team prayer to start the morning, or our morning huddle is going to involve, a, you know, a benediction or something like that. That's dangerous, right? And I think that when you say it like that, often people are like, oh, yeah, I could kind of see, you know, maybe there's a multi multi-denominational, there's agnostics or atheists in the group, and they may feel discriminated against. Religion is a protected class, so that can be uh, uh, iffy. What we see more often is unintended references to that. So often they'll be like, we have like a rules for the team in the handbook, which is fine. But if you call those rules for the team the team commandments, oh, man, that sounds like something I know. I feel like I've seen a movie about that, oh, <laughs> right? Yes. So all of a sudden it has these religious overtones, especially if it's written in thou shalt whatever. Um, and so then we get to have this almost side religious conversation that wasn't necessary. It's, it's fine to write around that. Just call them the rules of the team. You know, like don't give them the gimme shots. Make the plaintiff's counsel work for it. Or better yet, and this is what we talk a lot about, is it's not necessarily about 100% protecting, because nothing's 100% uh, safe in employment law. But you just want to make your castle easier to defend and harder to break into than everybody else's because that plaintiff's counsel wants the easiest job. And so if you can put your fruit way up in the tree and everyone else's fruits at a high level, well, they're not going to come near your tree. They're going to go to everybody else's. They're going to break into other people's castles because it's easier, right? So clean up the handbook because those are the kind of easiest ones to, to break into. Um, the last one, and we see this a bunch because, uh, uh, I think that people have this idea of the two weeks' notice when someone quits is is professional, and so they say uh, two weeks' notice is required, uh, which is fine. It's not illegal to do that. Uh, but what it does do is create a employment for a term. You're always extending that out for two weeks for both sides. So essentially both sides have to give two weeks' notice, so you owe that employee two weeks of pay if you tell them, get out today. <laughs> uh, it's And it's just super easy to miss that one because it seems like, you know, that's the professional, the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. and someone drops the ball and puts it in the handbook. Hmm. Interesting. Well, we have a few minutes left on the show here and I have a feeling that my next question will probably lead into needing more than, than a few minutes to answer it. But you mentioned <laughs> the uh, Facebook, <laughs> not checking sure. employee Facebook. Tell me yeah. about that. Well, here's the thing. Social media can be a mine of information about people generally and employees specifically. Um, but you have to be very careful about using it because people tend to put rather intimate details of their lives on Facebook, Instagram, you know, whatever. Uh, and you don't want to know some of those. And you don't want to know some of those because you don't want to accidentally discriminate, right? You want to find out, let's say, the last assistant you hired, you know, came in hungover every Monday morning, right? And so you pushed her out the door, you're hiring for a new person, you're like, don't want to make the same mistakes, right? That's the right mentality. Let's find someone who doesn't binge drink every weekend. And so you're like, let me check their Facebook. I'll see if every weekend they have pictures with a drink in their hand. Probably not a good thing. And drinking is not a protected class, so, you know, you technically can go after that. Um, 
but you also, and you know, you look through, you find this great applicant. They don't have a lot of pictures of drinking, and then you see a sonogram picture of a baby, and now you know the person's pregnant. And now, if you don't fire them, now you're at risk of someone claiming that you did, you discriminated against them because they were pregnant. Now, will they know that? I don't know. Really depends. Uh, what I have found is that um, when people try to get slick with like looking up information and then like not trying to create a paper trail, people aren't that slick. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah. usually there's some record somewhere on the computer that you went there that you might have seen something. And here's the really big thing is that you don't ever want to get into the fight, right? You don't want to set up a situation where someone thinks they've been discriminated against because once you get sued, you've already lost the first battle because win, even winning a good case, a good case for you, is going to be expensive. So you can find out this information that you don't want to know in social media. Um, you can also get involved or, worst case, if you start posting or something like that, you can have this weird kind of breakdown of the professional relationship and become personal. Like don't, don't be friends with your employees on Facebook. That's a really bad idea, uh, especially you know, if you have direct subordinates. You don't want to know what goes on in their life. Um, uh, this kind of branches out into the, uh, a little bit of drug testing, but lots of people I deal with want a drug test. They're like, oh, I want to do, you know, I, have, I think that you know, this person is using drugs in my office, so I want to randomly test them. And I was like, well, let's first talk about what random means. That's not actually random. But you know, do you really want to drug test your entire office? Is that a good thing? What if your best employee happens to, you know, have a little bit of a coke habit on the weekend? Do you want to find that out? I don't know. Like, she's a really good employee. It's not affecting yeah. her. Uh, maybe you do. But once you start finding out information about people, you either have to take action on it or decide it doesn't matter for everyone. It has to be across the board. Um, so what, what you can do if you need to find out information, is use a third party. Don't be the person who goes onto Facebook. Hire a uh, background uh, check company. Now, background check companies come from the incredibly vanilla, very basic, uh, you know, just find out if they're a criminal <laughs> or an, ex, an ex-con, um, all the way up to, you know, a deep, like, gold mine of, of information through Facebook and all the social media projects. Basically think like having your, uh, you know, your, 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 your friend do a background search on someone that you're dating, right? They, they'll go deep on that and tell you the intel. That's kind of what it is, but have a professional company do it because they'll filter out all the stuff you don't want to know, like, you know, this person's pregnant or they just recently had an injury or they, you know, did something else you don't need to know. And they'll give you the information that you do need to know. So there is a way around it, but don't do it yourself. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And then I would imagine, you know, not just even in the pre-hiring phase, but in the continuous hiring phase with your staff, you know, that you've had Mm -hmm. that, uh, not problem staff, I mean, is it kind of a a golden rule to say, you know, just maybe uh, don't be checking out your staff's social media to see what they're up to on the weekend? Because, again, you probably don't want to know, (laughs) shouldn't know. You you, you just... You just don't. <laughs> Nothing good will come of it. Um, so I had a, a doctor, uh, actually literally yesterday, who found out that his um, employee was in a uh, sugar relationship. So basically, uh, it's a form of sex work where an employee will, or sorry, a, a person will uh, associate whether or not there's actual sex involved is really up to the uh, uh, particular arrangement, but um, basically is being supported by this outside entity, right? This other person. It's kind of like dating, but it's not just romantic. It's there's a, a money aspect to it, and 
he found this out because he was looking around on her social media. Well, what does he do with this information now, right? Does he come up to her and be like, well, I was prying into your private life and I found this out about you? That's really weird. <laughs> and, yeah, uh, yeah. But now he's got this thing in the back of his mind, whereas if he had just stayed away from it, he wouldn't care. And if she was a bad employee, she'd fire him. he'd fire him for being a, a bad employee. And if she was a good employee, great, she's a great employee. Who cares what she does on her own time? So yeah. that kind of situation can wind up. And you're no better off and possibly worse because you have that knowledge. And and I think, like, in that type of situation, it's really none of their business, you know, in, yes. in the big picture. And so, you know, it isn't something, if, like you said, if it's not directly affecting their performance or, you know, uh, team abilities within the practice and it's in their private life, then it's that's their deal. That's the way I would see it anyway. Yeah. And if you if you have an employee who's who's having trouble, you know, showing up to work or their performance has dropped off and you talk to them about it and you talk to them about it, you try to fix it, you give them training, you do corrective actions and eventually you push them out the door, great, you solve the problem. But if somewhere in there you're like, Why is this happening? and you like look into their digital life and you find out that they have some sort of, you know, debilitating cancer and they're, you know, been showing up late to work because they're they're going to treatments or something, and they didn't want to tell you because they were ashamed of it, well, now you're not going to be able to fire them safely. Like, maybe you don't want to fire them anymore. Maybe you want to help them. But let's say that, you know, you need to get them out of the office. Now it's really, really dangerous to do that because you have that knowledge. So knowledge is not always a good thing. It can be a very, very dangerous thing, um, especially when it goes towards protected class. Yeah, and I think in some of these things, and again, this is kind of my last uh, kind of comment and for you to comment back on, is I think what this some of this comes down to is really is the relationships that you build with your team. Because I would hope if somebody did have some kind of a debilitating disease that they wouldn't be afraid of, of coming into their employer and saying, I have this issue and how do I deal with it and still keep my job, you know, um, you know, I'd like to, to think that there must be, um, you know, ways for a physician to build a relationship with his team. So there's a lot of trust, there's a lot of loyalty, you know, and and, and in, in, you know, necessary situations, the employee is confident enough to be able to go to their, their boss and, you know, not get fired for something, <laughs> you know, that yes. is truly an issue for them. You know, whether it's a yeah. personal financial issue or it's a, a life-threatening issue. We like to talk about here about like kind of first level and second level management styles. So first level is, is kind of like a dictatorship, right? Uh, you make the rules. The rules must be followed. There are harsh punishments if the rules aren't followed. But it is not a necessarily a loving or a caring or a really a team environment there's just rules and you follow them <laughs> which can yeah, work well, I mean, don't don't get me wrong like that worked very well to create for instance factories right you, you, you be here at this time do your job leave here at this time you're done um, but the more complicated the work that you do the more creative the work is that you do uh, the more social interaction that work requires the less that that method of management works well and the more you want to shift to a team oriented and not just in the BS corporate synergy speak stuff but literally a team where you can trust people to do things on their own where you can trust them to fail and that's a big thing that we push like you can't expect always success because you're never going to go anywhere with that you need to have the trust to have someone fail and to have someone come to you and tell it tell you that they failed and ask you to help them unfail it <laughs> or do it better the next time right fix the problem so yeah look for that second level if you're at the first level and it's working 
great. I'm not hating on that, but the second level can, especially in a medical practice, really uh, get you more productive and, and uh, let's be honest, make you more money. Yeah, and I would imagine having a good synergy of level one and level two is um, probably the best scenario. Oh, yeah. Like, you need clear rules, absolutely. Like, you you can't get away from that, but you also need to have the, the, the trust and the loyalty of your team to be able to come forward and say, hey, things aren't good or they're not right, right? In a dictatorship, you can often get into that situation of no one wants to tell the emperor that they have no clothes, <laughs> and that's a real problem. That's like right before everything burns down. Wow. Well, Kurt, you know, thank you so much for being back on the show with us today. Um, like I said, I now have a plethora of, of other questions to ask you, which we'll have to save for another time. Um, Sounds good. But I'm sure, you know, for many of our listeners out there, you're just filled with, with just so much great information on how they can have a great team and run a safe, you know, labor law free practice. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for having me. Great, Kurt. Thank you so much. And then just lastly, um, you know, for any of our listeners that do want to get in touch with you or in touch with Cedar, what's the best way for them to reach you? Uh, well, they can call us. Phone number here is 866-414-6056. But probably the easiest thing and the thing I'd recommend, um, send in uh, your handbook. Copy your handbook to eval, that's E-V-A-L, uh, at cedar, C-E-D-R, solutions.com, and we'll take a look at it for free. Uh, we'll tell you what's wrong. <laughs> we'll, have, we'll have an attorney review the entire thing. We'll tell you what's wrong with it, what laws you're violating, what you're missing, what could be better. No strings attached. Now, obviously, we want to sell you a handbook, but at the very minimum, find out what's going wrong right now. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, thanks again for being on the show, Kurt. Happy to be here. Thanks again. Okay, bye-bye.